Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. On the Colbert Report, Stephen used to call them friends of the show, special guests who were recurring visitors. City Lights also has friends of the show, often those who share our love for humor. Later this hour, we'll listen back to an interview with the human rights organizer turned stand-up comic, Hurry Kondabolu. First, a longtime friend of the show. Whenever comedian Paula Poundstone is on the panel of NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, my weekend feels complete. And that's saying a lot because it's only Saturday morning and sometimes I haven't even begun my weekend chores. Paula is touring again and she'll be in Atlanta performing at the Buckhead Theater on Friday. Before she takes the stage, she joins me now via Zoom. Paula Poundstone, welcome back to City Lights. Well, thank you so much. Likewise, and we last spoke in 2020 ahead of your March performance at the Buckhead Theater, but that was postponed to December. Yes. And then the rest is pandemic history. Although live performances came to a halt, you stayed amazingly busy with your podcast, Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone, plus several comedy shows and videos you created for your website. What was it like to pivot from in-person gigs to online performances? Well, you know, in the beginning, which was March, the, in the very, uh, I came off the road uh, mid-March, maybe the second weekend in March, I think, and I thought with my expertise in the area of pandemics, I thought it was gonna be like a couple of weeks, mm. you know, maybe a month or two at most. So my immediate concern, knowing that everyone was scared and impacted uh, in such a severe way by, by, by everything, my immediate thought was I wanted to help people get through it. You know, so I just was posting comedy stuff, you know, strictly to entertain, thinking just to give people, you know, a little lift. And then, you know, I can't remember exactly at which point I was kicked in the side of the head by the cold boot of reality. But at some point I was like, you know, I think this is going to go on a little bit longer. At which point I started making a, a mini podcast called the uh, French Trump presidential press conference, which was a press conference that I wrote each week. Some friends of mine played the press. I was French Trump. People say to me all the time, they go, why was it French? Because I can't do a Trump impression. So I do him with a bogus French accent. And honestly, it works just fine. You get the idea. But it was a mini podcast and I did that for months and months. I did it all the way until, uh, well, until January 20th, you know, when Biden took office, obviously. And, and I started doing a, uh, 
Oh, a goofy little homemade game show called Nobody Asked You Starring Paula Poundstone. <laughs> and, you know, just sort of churning out whatever I could. I put up the tip jar thing on my, on my website. One thing that was really fun was that I, I did make it via Zoom. Zoom was not the fun part, um, but I did make it via Zoom. And there were these regular uh, audience members that came on for the taping. And then I would put it up on my website so anybody could watch it. But, you know, we would kind of check in and see how things were going. And, and it did feel like a little oasis from the stress. I, I always say I worked my ass off uh, while I wasn't on the road. And yet my hands would reach back and there was still a fairly large ass, which was frustrating. <laughs> well, it seems like being under lockdown further stimulated your creativity. I mean, it's endless, Paula. The amount of material you came out with in the past year and a half. Would you talk about your RX laughter videos? Those were the comedy videos that I started making just to help people get by. And in the beginning, I forget, we were doing like maybe a couple of weeks. My daughter was home with me and she was helping me. And we were making like maybe a couple of weeks in the beginning, which was a tremendous amount of work. But, you know, I'll tell you, I have off and on throughout my career been somewhat jealous of musicians. Why? Well, in part because... A musician can go on stage and go like, and it, and it feels great. And the audience just gets all excited because the musician went, and it fits right into what they're doing. Comics can't really do that. It's weird if we do it. So there's that. There's the fact that they can elicit any number of emotions and reactions, and it's considered successful. Whereas comics, there's one reaction that's successful. People have to laugh. If they don't laugh, then guess what? You didn't do very good. And so for those reasons, I feel jealous. But now in the midst of the pandemic, one of the things that happened right away was many organizations that are very good organizations that do very, very excellent and necessary work they raise money by doing a big gala. I entertain at a lot of those events. So charity organizations came out of the woodwork asking for, could I be a part of their um, online gala? Mm -hmm. Now they're working in a format that they have not ever had to do before. And as a comic, same here. But there was this idea that because musicians could perform in their living room and it was intimate, oh, isn't that wonderful? It was almost like a positive thing. Like, oh my gosh, you know, it's, we see their dog and it's intimate and it was so beautiful and the audience loved it. So there was this idea that somehow stand-up comics were going to do the same thing. And it doesn't work that way. You can't do stand-up comedy in your living room. You have to have the response of an audience. You just do. And so I tried a couple of times. I mean, I was never stupid enough to do stand-up from my living room, but I tried a couple of different ways of doing some sort of casserole of you know what I do and what they wanted. And oh my gosh, it was hard. I, I'm telling you, during the early part of the pandemic, the news hour on PBS, which I watch religiously, they did two different stories about Mary Chapin Carpenter doing intimate concerts from her living room. I hate Mary Chapin Carpenter now. <laughs> I, I, I'm probably the only person in the world. I, I wouldn't know her if I tripped over, but I, I felt so jealous of her. Like, oh, it's so beautiful. Oh, it's so wonderful. Mary Chapin Carpenter. I think no one ever has had that reaction to her before of hating her. But Paula, you appear so connected with your audience in these videos, even though you're not getting live responses. How do you pull that off? But none of it's stand-up per se. Do you know what I mean? Like for the RX comedy videos, I, I did mostly characters. 
uh, the one that I invented specifically for this crisis was Miss Nancy, who teaches, she was a Massachusetts elementary school teacher who was forced to, you know, teach online how they were doing. And one of my favorite things about that, I would read people's comments after I posted the, the videos and so many teachers wrote to me and they would say, more Miss Nancy, more Miss Nancy. <laughs> Miss Nancy is getting, getting me through. Um, but they, they all said, that's exactly what it's like. Really? <laughs> I'm just marveling at the range of characters who inhabit your Paula Poundstone universe. Well, I had been doing Rhonda Puckett, uh, who teaches uh, cooking with Rhonda, Mm -hmm. I have been doing her for, for years, the same thing, just, uh, you know, when Goofy uh, YouTube and all that came into being, I just started doing that. You know, when I was young, I wanted to be Carol Burnett or Lily Tomlin or Gilda Radner or, you know, and I missed by a country mile. Instead, when the opportunity presented itself, I went into, you know, stand-up comedy and I really, you know, never had the opportunity or never took the opportunity anyways to do sort of character kind of things. So only in more recent years have I done stuff like that. It takes a certain amount of courage and commitment. Oh, yeah. If you're telling a story or you're talking on a topic and you kind of feel like you're not really nailing it with the audience, well, you can so easily just pivot to something else. But if you are wearing a very short gingham dress with enormous, uh, well, enormous is a strong word, but with, with larger cleavage than anyone <laughs> is used to seeing you in, and a wig, you can't really pivot off of that. <laughs> you've, made a, you've made a certain commitment. Comedian Paula Poundstone will be at the Buckhead Theater on Friday. We'll continue with more of our conversation in just a moment. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. If you are just joining us, my guest is comedian, podcaster, and wait, wait, don't tell me, panelist Paula Poundstone. In one of your recent podcast episodes of Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone, you spoke with an Atlantan. Dr. Adrian Ivey, who's an associate professor of English at Emory University's Oxford College. She teaches a Harry Potter course at Emory. How did you find out about this? You know what? We have a producer, Tony Anita Hall, who does a lot of the booking on the show, not all the booking, but a lot of the booking, and she found her. And she emailed me and said, we, you know, would you like to talk to someone who teaches uh, Harry Potter and both Adam, my partner and I were both like, yes, because I love Harry Potter. And she was fascinating to talk to. And by the way, she had any number of interpretations of things within Harry Potter that I had never thought about one way or the other, uh, that wouldn't have occurred to me unless she had said it. And once she said it, I was like, oh yeah. Some of it is because she's a professor and studies things like literature and philosophy and this sort. And some of it may just be that she's 
a lot more observant than I am. I just read it, you know, to me, it was just a story. It's just a story, but again, with a wand. But wait, you, you sounded very comfortable in discourse there, Paula. You were talking with an academic about this serious approach to Harry Potter. What did you ultimately take away from that conversation with Professor Ivy? Well, one of the things that she said, I mean, she says that the author eventually confessed that it was a Jesus story. That, I was like, what? (laughs) And then when she sort of, well, A, apparently that's what Rowling actually says. And she said she could never say that in the beginning because it would give the story away. But, you know, she gives examples of like the, the dead people coming back and talking to Harry the night before his big challenge at the end. She had a number of examples as to why that was. Mostly things that one would see in the seventh book. Given that the author says that herself, and given that there are these representations of that within the book, I get it once it's pointed out, but I don't know, to me, it just sort of gets in the way. Once the words are on the page, and once the reader takes the book in their hand, in their head, in their heart, you know what? I don't care what the author says. Well, speaking of words on the page, you didn't get to Professor Ivy without, once again, eviscerating Eat, Pray, Love. <laughs> we have a book club on my podcast, and we've only, so we're in the midst of our, reading our second book. We're not fast. We just do it at the top of the show. And the first book was Moby Dick, which we all complained about the whole time. And then we finished that and oh, oh, because it's a club, you know, we voted on what book it was going to be. And I had suggested Moby Dick and Tony Anita Hull, uh, I believe, had suggested Eat, Pray, Love. So we agreed to that for the second book. I I mean, part of the reason I agreed to it was because I knew I would hate it. And uh, so far, I've been right. (laughs) They're very short chapters and we're, we're about 30 six chapters in or something like that. Now, she describes depression very well. I I give her credit for that. I don't know how many times I want to have depression described, but her description of it is very accurate. So you're back on tour, and I heard you talking recently about flight delays, and you blame some of this on climate change. I really perked up when you said, and there's a new FDA rule. Would you share that? I don't know if everyone's been flying, but um, there has to be two ass on every flight now. (laughs) Yeah. My flight couldn't take off the other day because there was only one ass. And uh, so they asked for volunteers. And, uh, you know, I raised my hand and and said, uh, I refuse to put my seat back forward. And uh, they're like, okay, thank you. (laughs) But you kept your mask on. Yeah. You know, I can't figure it out. I I actually, you know what? I'm right now, as I speak to you, I am in a hotel outside of Pittsburgh. And I flew here last night. I've been flying a day ahead of time, uh, which is a big old pain in the butt. But because there aren't as many flights as there used to be, because I have to have a plan B if something goes wrong so that I need the extra time in case, in case for some reason I can't get where I'm going. I flew here last night and when I went to get off the plane, I'm always like the last one off because I'm packing my things and folding my little blanket that I bring with me. <laughs> so I said to the flight attendant, I said, how have things been for you? You know, And she said, you know, not bad, not bad. And I said, nobody knocking your teeth out or anything like that. And she said, no. She said, it really depends where we fly. Ooh, so tell us, what are the dangerous spots? Well, she specifically said Miami. Really? Yeah. Well, apparently Pittsburgh's not one of the bad places um, because that's where we were landing. But, you know, I said to her, I go, really? Because I said, you know, in California, I mean, people have to keep in mind, California is a big state. You know, governing California would be like governing from, uh, say, you know, Connecticut down through Georgia. 
it's a big stretch of land and there's a lot of different kind of people in that stretch of land. And even not far from LA, we have uh, Huntington Beach, which is fully stocked with nutcases. <laughs> and so I don't know why they wouldn't necessarily have nutters coming out of LAX. But anyway, she did specifically say Miami. I think I interrupted her before she could say anything else because I'm like that. I'm just such a talker. It's really an awful thing. FDR could be in the lobby of the Marriott courtyard outside of Pittsburgh that I'm in. And, uh, you know, it would be a rare sighting. I could <laughs> bump into him down there and engage in conversation with him. And he might begin to tell me about, you know, the, the crash of 29 and the Dust Bowl. And I would interrupt him to tell him that I rode in a, a wheelchair once in, in an airport. I think he would be charmed. <laughs> I really do. And remember, he did radio, too, just like you. Oh, I forgot. Yes, he did. Right. The, the chat. Obviously, your stand-up is going to be vastly different than it would have been in March of 2020. You've talked about a recognition factor in comedy, a recognition laughter, is it, from the audience? Would you elaborate? Recognition laughter, yes. It's when I say something, or when one says something, that the people that you're telling it to, part of their laughter comes from just the, the joy, I think, of realizing that they weren't the only one to have that experience. Like, you know, telling a story about driving badly or something. I, I know, not being able to figure out the windshield wiper stick on the steering wheel. You know, I always push it too far. I can never find, you know, once the windshield wipers are going, it takes me forever to get them turned off again um, because they're, they're nuanced. There's so many degrees of windshield wipering. You think they're off. And then on a perfectly dry day, a week later, they just go. Yeah, it's like 50 shades of windshield wipe. Uh, honestly, exactly. And so, you know, when you're telling something and everybody's like, oh my gosh, that happened to me. Especially, I think, when I tell stories about parenting. Parenting is such a lonely pursuit because you just never know if you're doing it right. And... We're not all the exact same, of course. You know, there's just always this feeling that somehow it's like, oh, this only happens to me, you know, or I'm the only one who makes such a stupid decision, or I'm the only one who did this or did that, which by the way, just compounds whatever it is you're going through. So when I would tell a story on stage about some sort of frustration I had with, with parenting and people will laugh with that sort of recognition laughter, like, Oh my gosh, that happened to me. It's so healing for both the audience to hear me tell the story and for me to go, oh, you know what? If this hadn't happened to anybody else, then they wouldn't laugh. They would just stare at me with like an RCA dog head. Yeah, that's a nice thing. And we have a tendency, I think, to believe ourselves to be far more unique than we actually are. See, this is what I love, this recognition laughter that you touch upon. It's showing that we all are sharing this. I mean, even the pandemic, which I imagine you will touch upon in your stand-up, you found the silver lining. Well, you know, I think in America, with our insistence on our individuality and wanting to be, you know, so terribly unique, I think sometimes, especially now, I think that one of the things that has happened, I am a devout Democrat. Uh, I think I'm a pretty progressive Democrat. And I would still argue that I have more in common with the hardest core right-wing Republican you can find than I have differences. We forget that. I don't know why we forget it, but we do. You say something on Zoom that I love when you welcome guests. You say, it's so nice to be with you and not really with you. <laughs> it is just so nice 
to be with you on any platform, Paula Poundstone. Thank you so very much. Well, thank you. It was really fun talking with you. Comedian Paula Poundstone, her long-awaited rescheduled date at the Buckhead Theater in Atlanta is this Friday, September 17th. More information is available on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. Coming up, we'll revisit one of my conversations with the whip-smart comedian Hurry Kondabolu. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. With an advanced degree from the London School of Economics, a background in comparative politics, and as a human rights organizer, Hurry Kondabolu wasn't sure if his dream to be a comic performer would ever come true. Well, now that it has, that intellect is evident in his stand-up with its smart and insightful wit. Kondabolu joined us a few times over the years, and here he explains why he decided to call one of his comedy albums Mainstream American Comic. The album is about the idea that I'm not seen as a, a mainstream person. I'm not considered part of the mainstream as a person of color, also uh, uh, as somebody with with the politics that I have, uh, very progressive-minded. And uh, and my comedy certainly isn't seen as that as well. And I believe it should be because my story, the son of uh, immigrants from India, that's part of the American story. You know, that's, that's, that's a key part of the American story, the idea of immigration. And also as a person of color, that is a key part and a key a point of view in the American story. And my humor that talks about those experiences as well as, uh, you know, social justice, I feel like that is something, even if the people don't like the phrase social justice, when you're talking about equality and fairness, that's a universal principle as well. Yeah. So, so why can't I be seen as mainstream just because I talk about the things I talk about and I look the way I look and my background is what it is? Do you think there are people who actually would object to the word social justice? <laughs> yes, I think there's a lot of people that do not like that phrase. I mean, we speak in these little phrases, right? And they're, they're shorthand for this bigger these bigger ideas and when i hear social justice i know what i think of i think of uh, the actual work i talk about fair, i think about fair housing and fighting racism and and gender discrimination and, and homophobia and trans i have these images that come to mind when other people see social justice they think people who want more taxes and who supports uh, an underclass that they see as shady and scary and you know, all sorts of weird things come into mind because, you know, the, a phrase that's so small like that can be changed depending on who's using it. Uh -huh. um, but if you talk about the actual issues, the things people actually care about, and you avoid certain phrases like activists and social justice, it's you're, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm funny. I'm good on stage. I can connect to people. It doesn't matter what those phrases are. I, you know, I find them irrelevant to me. It's are you listening to the stuff? Can can you understand what I'm saying? Do you find it funny? It's finding that common ground that is going to push us forward. Well, the serious concerns of a comedian's perspective are fascinating. And you actually pursued a master's degree in human rights at the London <laughs> School of Economics. Would you talk about how your comedy intersects with human rights? You began to touch upon it a moment ago. Absolutely. Uh, so my background uh, was as an immigrant rights organizer. I lived in Seattle for a couple of years, and I did comedy at night. It was a hobby. It was something I loved to do and I planned to do for the rest of my life, and it didn't really matter if it was in a professional capacity or not. Like, I knew that that was something I, I loved. And plus, I didn't see it as a realistic option, really. Just at the time, there weren't that many South Asians doing it. So I kept it as a hobby, and, and I 
you know, I wanted justice, you know, especially really coming of age post 9-11, seeing where the country was in, you know, in the middle of two wars and with hate crimes being committed around the country and people being detained and deported. I mean, honestly, what we're experiencing right now is, is, is triggering. It's very familiar to me. Um, so after that point, uh, you know, I, I get this job in Seattle working as an immigrant rights organizer and I decide I want a master's degree in human rights because I felt like a human rights framework was really important. We don't really talk about human rights in a very clear way here. You know, we talk about our rights. Gun rights are considered part of our fundamental rights. But when we talk about human rights, what does that mean? What kind of coalitions can we build internationally? And I thought that would be useful on my part to get that education. And while I was, you know, applying to to school, I was discovered by the HBO Comedy Festival, which is now defunct. But they're a festival that discovered new talent. And I I sent them some of my comedy. And the next thing I know, I have a manager and I'm at this festival and I'm on Jimmy Kimmel Live. And the next day after Jimmy Kimmel Live, I went right back to work from the airport and pretended nothing happened. Like it was it was a weird place to be. And so the those two things, comedy and the idea of justice and activism, you know, I don't see them as separate things that are intertwining because I'm I'm both of those things. Yeah. Like I've been a comedian longer than I've, you know, maybe was politically minded. I've been I've been doing comedy since I was 16 or 17 years old. I've been collecting my thoughts for most of my life. And I think that being someone who wanted to create positive change in the world, that came later, but they both sync up for me. Like when I'm on stage, I'm not making political jokes. I'm sharing my observations on the world. To me, it's observational comedy. It's the first thing I see. There's no special lens that I apply. So I think to me, it's 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 one and the same. And is it your hope that uh, the takeaway from your comedy might lead to activism? No, I think the take, I want people to laugh. That's really as simple as that. I like hearing that positive things come out of it. Like I know that my my first album, especially Waiting for 2042, is on a bunch of high school and college curriculums and a few grad school curriculums, which I certainly did not expect. Like I don't think anybody expects that when they release a comedy album, but it certainly makes me feel proud. I'm proud that that's the byproduct. I, you know, seeing things I wrote uh, as jokes or or our setups to jokes being on protest signs. I mean, it was amazing. People sending me pictures of things I've said on protest signs during the Women's March and during the No Bad No No Wall March or during the the Black Lives Black Lives uh, Matters marches and rallies. Like these are beautiful things, but that is not my intention. My uh, you know intention is to be the best stand-up comedian I can be on the terms. That I want to, uh, you know, on my terms, you know, I want to be honest with my point of view, like all the greats did. I, I don't want, I, and people can read phonies. I, I don't want to be that. I want to stretch out the form and see all the new ways one can hide a punchline. Like I focus on what's in front of me. That's <clears throat> all you can focus on. Just f- focus on the task in front of you. But you're enlightening people along the way that you're making them laugh. Sure. I mean, I think there are people who, especially younger people, I will say more than anything, like when I do colleges, I I love the fact there are people who are uh, being exposed to critical thought for the first time. But I don't go in with the intention. I'm aware of the possibility of it. But if you go in with that intention, you're not writing to be funny. You're writing to educate. And when you write to educate, there's a real risk there of losing the, the, your focus, right? Like there's lots of art th- that I've heard that is socially aware and thoughtful and, and to me righteous, but I don't like the art. It, <laughs> I, to me, it's not entertaining or interesting because the focus has been so much on the message and not on how do we, you know, you can play to your circles and people be, w- would like that, but you, you really want to, you know, uh, reach as many people as possible. And to reach as many people as possible, like, you have to be great at the art form and connect to people. And so I want to be the best stand-up comic I can be. And, you know, from there we can, you know, if it affects people, fantastic. But I I can't focus focus on that when I'm up there. It seems that so many great comics... Their work is informed by being an outsider or being on the margins. Is that what you feel is at the essence of your comedy? Absolutely, 100%. That is such a fundamental part of of how I do things. And I think I felt it the most um, doing shows in India. 
um, I did shows in India a few years ago, and I remember just how strange it was to be seen as an American on stage, because normally I'm up there talking about being a part, you know, a marginalized person, mm-hmm. you know, being in a marginalized community in America and not being seen as American. But as far as the people in the audience in the various Indian cities I performed at were concerned, I was American. Like that distinction doesn't really, you know, doesn't really play. I was talking the way, like I speak the way I speak. I, I talk quickly. I'm interested in very American-centric issues. Like I'm an American. And it really threw me off because I, I, I'm not used to that here. Did, here it's, per, it's pretty straight. When I go on stage, I, I know I'm the outsider. I mean, that's not that hard. But in other countries, it's amazing to feel American finally. Well, did any of your audiences in India hear your thoughts on Christopher Columbus? <laughs> no, I should have done that bit now that I think about it because I, I had written it by then. But I no, no, they because uh, I would they think haven't. they'd find that brilliant. <laughs> Columbus is why I have to tell people that I'm Indian from India. For real? Of course I am. That's where Indians originally come from. India, the factory that makes them. How do you assume a place without silk, spices, or elephants is India? You'd have to be an idiot or an egomaniac. And judging by his hat, he was clearly both. I remember I had an uncle once who, because he had heard my stand-up or maybe he saw something I did on TV about Columbus Day, and he said, why are you so worried and concerned about those issues? You know, that's, you know those, aren't, those aren't Indian issues. Why are you concerned about the, those issues? And we're not even that kind of Indian. And I, and I said, like, you know that Columbus was looking for us. So, <laughs> so it was, he, he robbed someone's home but it was our neighbor's home, and he meant it to be our home. So, you know, we're still in a bad neighborhood. <laughs> like, we're still, we're still at risk here. Don't think just because your neighbor got robbed that you're safe. Yeah, well, the like, English picked up where he left off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, it, it certainly worked out for some people, yes. <laughs> <laughs> if you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with comedian Hari Kondabolu. You enjoy wordplay, and you have some hilarious bits on language and cliches like playing devil's advocate and (laughs) boys will be boys. What's your take on alternative facts? (laughs) Oh, my God. Um... I mean, English is an amazing language in that you can really play with it uh, to try to explain yourself. I mean, I don't know if we needed another synonym for lie. I felt <laughs> like I felt like we had that covered, uh, but this is a new one. It's scary when up is down and down is up, and we go along with it, and it's it's this weird. Uh, hyperbole mixed with lies. And the thing is, it's weird to criticize the media and say that they're lying when you are not even subtle about your lies. I mean, for comedy, this is good. It's pointing out hypocrisy. I mean, that's it's very they make it very simple. But for (laughs) for the for the betterment of society, this is very bad. How do you try out and develop material on the road that is about politics, sensitive subject, and risky in that some people may not laugh. I mean, you see where the laughs are coming from, you know, especially if you do it in enough cities, you get a sense of this is going to work here, this is going to not work here, uh, you know, this audience gets this part, not that part, and it kind of forces you to to build. Sometimes if the actual, um, the heart of the joke isn't something that, people are going to be able to relate to necessarily like you have to find the way to still explain it to them where they might laugh. And I think the second part becomes relatable. 
And sometimes it's not that they even disagree with the first half of the of the joke. They just might be uncomfortable by it or they don't want to confront it. And that's that's on me. That's my responsibility to strengthen that joke as much as possible. So as as wide a group of uh, as wide a group as possible can enjoy it. Her yours is smart comedy. I mean, Trevor Noah, Wyatt Sinek, Hassan Minaj, uh, Neil Brennan. This is smart comedy in your league. And you've said that you think you look like a Muppet with a Ph.D. (laughs) The doctoral degree is believable. So when you say that a lot of what's going on in our country feels like the end of a Kurt Vonnegut novel, you're presuming your audience is well-read or at least understands the reference. Do you think about having broad appeal? Is that important to you? Or do you want smart audiences? I mean, both. You know, I want both. I want an audience that understands the Kurt Vonnegut reference. But the joke before that Kurt Vonnegut reference on my special was that it's hard to make fun of Trump because he does all the work and CNN has turned into Comedy Central. (laughs) So, you know, I feel like that joke is going to hit more people. More people are going to understand it and laugh. And the people who understand the Vonnegut reference will laugh at the Vonnegut reference. So, you know, I, I think about laughs as having a range. You know, there's the insidery laugh, and then there's the bigger laughs that are related to more people. There's a laugh that causes catharsis. Let's say it's a it's a laugh about the experience that many people of color have. You know, you're going to get a laugh out of those people of color that's, that's from the gunt. There's going to be a ton of white people that might laugh, too, because logically it makes sense to them, and they, they understand my passion. But if you're a person of color, it's a gut laugh. Like, I... It hurt like it hurt to laugh because I know exactly what you're talking Mm. about. Um, And so, you know, I I don't think all laughs are the same. And and that's how I approach my stand up. Like, you know, there's certain things I can imagine that my friends would find funny and I would find funny. And there's still that responsibility of creating an entertaining show. And that doesn't mean that the other jokes I make aren't in my voice. They're also in my voice. But, you know, I have, a, I have a range of things I'm interested in and find funny, so I try to show that range. We appreciate the reference to NPR in your special. <laughs> ATC should have a mango edition of the program. Have, have you pitched that to NPR yet? Not yet. <laughs> Indian people love mangoes. When we don't have mangoes available to us, we will sit around in a circle and share stories of favorite mangoes we've eaten in the past. My father ate a mango in 1973 that he bought at a roadside stall in India, and the story is the mango was very juicy. That's the whole story. That's the whole story. And my brother and I will still be like, Papa, can you tell us the mango story again? How juicy was that mango, Father? I feel like some of you are really into this joke, and... Some of you are like, did you know about Indians and mangoes? I had no idea. Do you know about this? Indians and mangoes? It's fascinating. It's like NPR Live. It's like all things considered mango edition. This is something else. Learning stuff. Mango Tuck, I think, I sometimes wonder if it would really work as a podcast. That's the reference I make in the special about yes. a, a podcast where I'm just eating mangoes <laughs> with other South Asians <laughs> talking about how delicious the mangoes are. And you, um, you could have your dad on. Oh my God! It would. I mean, I mean, honestly, mangoes to me. I. I mean, I love that joke partly because it's ridiculous, but it's also very personal and cultural. Like mangoes are a big deal in South Asian households. Like I, I can't tell you the number of conversations I've had with my parents and their friends about fruit they had when they grew up <laughs> and how delicious the fruit used to be, and you know, mangoes in particular. So for. For me, that joke was important because it was also sharing a bit of myself and a bit of culture I don't always share or haven't shared historically. My hours generally fluctuate between funny and uncomfortable. Hmm. And that is always something I've enjoyed doing. And maybe that's sick or masochistic. But I do like going towards the uncomfortable and seeing if I can get myself out. Uh, And plus, I feel like the, the laughs are richer because... You know, I, I, it's like it's like a magic trick. How how on earth was I able to get us out of that? Um, and that's that's something I I do. And 
Another thing I love is, is the fact that my audiences historically have been extremely diverse, and I'm proud of that. And that means that people feel comfortable coming to my shows and, and hearing a broad range of ideas. And so, at the end of the day, it, it you know, some people will call it smart, and some people will, will call it aggressive. And at the end of the day, I think it's funny, <laughs> and that's I think the the you know the lasting impression I want to leave was. It was smart and you know, maybe uncomfortable at times, but I laughed. And I've done that pretty well, it appears like. Well, we've mentioned Netflix several times. They have really jumped into the stand-up game. From your perspective, both on stage and inside the industry, has the boom in streaming stand-up specials had any effect on audiences? Or on comedians. I think that the increase of stand-up specials has helped comics in terms of drawing their own fan bases and larger fan bases. Like, you know, I, I can make the base of people who like me happy, but I can also find all these new people. And that increases the audience and leads to stronger audiences. So that's for comics. It's obviously a boon. I also think that it leads to smarter audiences because you're, you're hearing a broad range of styles. Comedy isn't just one thing. So you're someone who, you know, watches Hannah Gatsby. You're seeing a completely different way of doing the art form, and that makes you, you know, have a different set of expectations. Like, it doesn't just need to be this. That leads for better audiences. I like audiences that can deal with silence. I like audiences that have patience, and I feel like this is what, you know, this boom has created. It's not just a handful of similar voices. It's a broad range and that helps all of us. Mm. And I and I think it, you know, I think it's it makes sense for people to be invested in stand up. I mean, I think for one, it's cheaper to produce than a lot of things. Two, it has a huge following still. Um, three, you're creating stars out of it because it's profiling an individual. Um, I think all these things are are good both for for all these media companies as well as obviously for the performers. And the fact that, like, people still have the attention span for stand-up, I find stunning. I do the thing. People want so... They they want flashy lights, and they want action, and they want special effects, and they want things to move quick. Yet somehow a human being and a microphone and little else, that that still works. I mean, there must be something to that. You're back to that ancient art of storytelling. Yeah, absolutely. And I think people... For all these, these, you know, the complexities and the advances we've made, I think people still have a yearning to just talk and listen to other human beings and hear their stories. That has not gone away yet, thank God. You are very active on Twitter, where you can be immediate and unfiltered, and you address some serious issues there. How do you translate that anger into humor? I think that a lot of my humor comes from um, sadness and anger and discomfort. That's something my mother definitely taught me is, you know, how... And she didn't teach me by, you know, verbally telling me, this is how you make a joke. But, you know, for all the painful moments in her life and the loss, she's always found a way to to laugh about it and find some way to find humor, even in the darkest of things. It's um, a defense mechanism. It's a survival strategy. It's an ancient thing. There's a re- you know there must be some evolutionary benefit to making jokes and laughing since it's been around so long. We need that feeling, and you know so I um, you know turn that anger and and that sadness and I recycle it into something that can create joy. I don't know what else to do. What else do you do with anger? You know I can let it fester. You know, but for me, it's like, well, you just have to find a way to be as creative as you can to turn this into something positive. Your mother, you credit with informing your humor or or getting your sense of humor from her. It sounds like that was quite a coping mechanism for her as well. Yeah, absolutely. People ask me, like, can we still laugh when things are this difficult? Are we, you know, are we allowed to tell jokes? And I'm like, how do people think jokes and humor work? I mean, that's it's a defense mechanism. It it saves you. It's resistance. And my mom has always done that. Like, I don't think it's an easy thing to work to be a doctor and a, a, a woman doctor 
in southern India in the 70s in a conservative climate, that is an achievement. There were all these young women that looked up to my mother and she gave all that up and came to this country. That is that is tragic. I mean, there's two ways to go. You either fold or you find a way to deal with it. And humor was always part of that. And then on the 4th of July, I said, happy Independence Day, mom. And she said, thanks, son. But I lost my independence 35 years ago. So that plus anxiety equals comedian. There you go. I think about the fact that she, you know, she can joke about the darkest things and she can find some light in it. And, you know, I, I think that's a, that is a difficult thing to do. And the fact that she does it is amazing. Well, without being a physician, you are clearly carrying on the family talent. Oh, Lois, thank you. Comedian Hari Kondabolu. More information about his Netflix stand-up specials will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., the Atlanta Pops Orchestra is bringing their concert fair to the Roswell Cultural Arts Center. We'll hear from the executive director and longtime drummer of the Atlanta Pops, Kevin Leahy, along with the guest soloist, the Atlanta Braves' favorite opera singer, Timothy Miller. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.